Hello everyone, and we are today with uh, Luke Ford. Welcome to the second episode of a series of trial of The Public Space, a new show uh, where right now for this week we will be interacting with new personalities. As you know, we are trying people. We're looking at whether they can produce content and collaborate with us in the long term eventually, either as co-hosts or collaborators. And my friend Luke Ford is with us. How are you doing today, Luke? I am well, thank you, JF. All right, and concerning the uh, audience, uh, I know that uh, a lot of you have commented on the sounds. I tried to fix the audio, but let me know through the chat if it's fixed for today. I think we have better audio today. It will keep improving. And I've received many comments on the intro. People are saying you should have more characters on the intro. Of course, I agree. Uh, this, is a, uh, this is a draft intro. And I want you guys on the, the video to comment and let me know what characters do you think have influenced the public space, the mediatic space? What do you think could be included on top of our first attempt here with Sargon of Akkad? Uh, there's Dave Rubin. The, there's a speaker of the White House. Who else could we include? So, Luke, um, we, we've talked a lot, so we already know each other. We, we've had streams together. Uh, you are a special YouTuber in that you are Jewish and yet you keep attracting a very highly alt-right audience. Yes, uh, I'd say that 80% of my audience is of the Daily Stormer, the right stuff uh, demographic. And so it makes for very intense uh, discussions and conversations in the show. So I'll often bring on uh, the 1488 crowd as guests onto my show and I'll have them talking with uh, Hasidic Jews and uh, modern Orthodox Jews and secular Jews and uh, I like that dynamic. All right so uh, today you've brought a couple of news that are very interesting. Uh, we will probably have time to talk about Iran and the, uh, the Israel position on Iran right now. And, uh, but one of the fascinating uh, news that you sent me is this Upper West Side parents not pleased with public school diversity push. There are parents who are frustrated because a set of schools have decided to push uh, students who are not as competent as the other students and to impose their presence in normal classes. Is that correct? Yes, and uh, it comes from the New York Post, it comes from uh, VH1, a TV network in New York, comes from uh, the website Raw Story, and uh, it's, it's hilarious that some of the video and the headline is wealthy white Manhattan parents angrily rant against plan to bring more black kids to their schools. What the headlines and the news stories won't make obvious is that these parents are largely Jewish, they're not just white, but they would never have the balls to say angry Jews rant about plan to bring more black kids to their schools. But that's what's going on. When people move to the Upper West Side, uh, they, unless they're Orthodox Jews or very religious uh, Christians, they will send their kids to public schools. And that's the reason they pay for such exorbitant real estate prices. Yeah, so the article was schools. illustrating here that uh, some of these apartments are worth uh, upward $5 million. So we're talking about a very rich uh, region, right? Yeah, in Los Angeles, in San Francisco, parents who are, who are rich just automatically send their kids to private schools. But for, for whatever reason, on the Upper West Side, 
people who aren't highly religious de facto send their kids to public schools, and so they expect elite public schools, every bit as elite, if not more elite than Beverly Hills High School. And so they don't want disruption by kids who, with a tendency to violence, with kids with a tendency to aggression, and with kids who are simply not very smart. So uh, the conditions of the, can you describe to us what are the conditions that were required to each school here? I, oh, I believe well, it was a threshold in students who were less successful. I believe it was three kids per class. Yeah, yeah. They, they wanted to reserve actually 25% of the seats at 17 middle schools in District 3 for kids who score below grade level on state exams. Below okay. grade level. <laughs> I mean, that would just be an absolute disaster for those kids. I mean, just admitting 5% of them would cause rampant disruption disruption for the schools. Now, 25% of kids who can't score at grade level into these elite schools, you're just trashing the schools. Yeah, I remember when I was young, uh, I, when I was young, when I was eight years old, I already had this socialist communist mind because sometimes it's natural when you're young. And I remember having chances to be included in elite schools and saying no. And oh God, I regret the amount of time I lost not being in classes that would push me to my best. I regret that part of my life so much. And I wish that there would be a discourse today on the public space, letting people know you are wasting your time. When I was young, my view was whatever my people goes through, whatever people who are my cousins, my friends, whatever normal people go through, I want to go through it. But the reality of education is that if you are with a group that is lower, they will drag you down. They will keep you around their mean and public schools when they When they think about allocating resources in that way, they don't think about the interest of the intelligent children who can become extremely productive members of society. Right. I remember when I was going to, to school, I was going to uh, Seventh-day Adventist church school, and I would notice every year that the, that the trends would change, that the, the teachers would come with some whole new uh, propaganda. But what was consistent is they were always against competition. And competition was the only thing that could possibly raise me from my slumber and, and my lack of interest in schoolwork. When I had an opportunity to compete, then I gave my best, but there were almost no opportunities to compete. So as a result, I was a mediocre school student up until community college when I suddenly decided to get serious, and then I became a, a straight-A student. But uh, my, my whole grade school education was largely wasted because in the schools that I went to, competition was a very dirty word. To me, this is another illustration of a much bigger problem, which is the limits of the state capacity to lead individuals to realize themselves to their full potential. Uh, when you have a state, the state by, by its very nature, and especially in democratic state, it is somewhat of a, of a tool of equality. And that works for things that we all agree on, such as the implementation of crimes and the law, uh, the prosecution of the law. But when you start, when the state starts being a welfare agent, then the lowest part of society want to get their piece of that welfare. And in this case, the intelligent children and their presence around the lower grade children 
is is a form of welfare that is imposed on young intelligent people yeah young intelligent people are used as punching bags for, for the less intelligent and for the more raucous and there are a lot of traits associated with lower iq such as they become sexual much earlier they're much more impulsive uh they make worse decisions they're much more inclined to criminal behavior and so you're throwing your your kids to the lions if you're taking your above average intelligence children and then throwing them in there with the average and below average kids who are very likely to beat them up to engage in destructive behavior and uh, just kind of wreck the whole atmosphere for learning all right thank you for bringing this news item now in the a uh, separate news item. I don't think it's recent news, but uh, you sent me a reflection about uh, Americans, young Americans having less sex. And it was an article uh, on politico.com. Uh, and they, they cite Netflix, among, among other things uh, ab that people do instead of having sex. So what are your thoughts on uh, the, the current sexual situation in America? Well, to me, this ties in with the previous story because I think both stories are really about the destructive effect of, of racial diversity. So in a more diverse country, people tend to pull in like tortoises and pull their heads in. They don't interact as much socially. They just go to work or go to school and then come home. They play video games, they Netflix out, or they find safe space within people who are like them. But in a homogeneous society, such as what the United States used to be and where much of the United States still is, or in Australia, where I come from, it's much easier to go out into the public square, to socialize, uh, to, to make friends. But when you're surrounded by people who are largely hostile, and let's, let's be honest, when you boil it down, basically whites hate blacks, blacks hate whites, Mexicans hate blacks, blacks hate Mexicans, um, Asians, by and large, have a lot of disdain for people who, who aren't Asian. So when you introduce this, this racial quadrant, people uh, are less likely to socialize. And so they're just going to be much more tempted to play video games and to watch Netflix rather than engaging in social and communal activities. And you can't really have a love life unless you have a social life. And by increasing racial and religious diversity, you're reducing the possibilities for a coherent uh, social life. And so because people aren't socializing as much, they're not uh, dating as much, they're not getting married as much. Uh, huge rates of, of immigration have, have raised real estate prices to make uh, having children much more expensive. So people with high intelligence are having fewer children, while the unintelligent are having massive numbers of children who are then making the country more unsafe for everyone, thereby even increasing the odds against uh, socialization, against affordable family formation, and uh, the country is just going to hell. I think that the reduction of sex in America is uh, a very complex phenomenon. I'm not sure I buy the part of race mixing and racial diversity as having a causal role on uh, sex. I think that the American lifestyle is uh, is problematic for sex in many ways. First, there is the liberation of women, the idea that women are part of the workforce and that ultimately we add only 50% of the 
people being able to work in, with women working were at 100% and so this leaves less time for the couple to be together. Secondly, uh, people are getting more fat. That's another reason. And entertainment is uh, is something that triggers the brain that, that, that keeps our attention away from sex. Uh, because, uh, for example, when, when, we, uh, when we lacked electricity in Quebec for, I believe it was two or three weeks in a row, there was a big storm and we lacked electricity. There was actually a baby boom created by this. So this shows that merely the presence of entertainment options and games and computers is enough to keep people from having sex. So I'm not sure w to what extent do you think racial diversity would be a causal influence on this? Oh, maybe 20%. I, I agree with all of your uh, all of your points as well. I mean, we're living in an era of sexual utopian power. We're post uh, the sexual revolution, and one would think that the sexual revolution would open up far more opportunities for sex with apps like Tinder, but instead it seems to have had the opposite effect because before the sexual revolution, basically everyone could find a partner and get married. And now we, we have a situation where the JFs of the world, they can have sex with a thousand women, but that means that probably 900 guys are not going to have a partner because there's the big alpha like JF who will go around and just snap up all the, all the women because he's so alpha. But the average bloke, he's just not going to be able to compete with, uh, you know, the, the woman who's a five or a six and she thinks that she can have one night with JF, that's just going to warp her for the rest of her life because for the rest of her life, she, she either has to settle down with a five, but she'll be forever haunted by that one night with JF. And so there are like a thousand women out there who have been permanently damaged by one night with JF. I have a completely different theory. I believe that my involvement in sex with women increases the availability of women's sex because I leave them with a feeling of wanting more. It's just like the public space. I do just a one hour so that my viewers want more and they want to come back the next day. The, the, the same strategy I apply to sex. And so I think that other guys are getting more sex because of me. Now, Brundlefly, $5 US says, Luke Ford is a bus. Ask him about his time in porn. Great stories. I think we've already discussed that, right? <laughs> yeah, I hardly even remember that. I mean, I just did that for uh, for research purposes. I was just following the, the scientific method. But pushing back on your point, I don't think pretty much any woman uh, thinks fondly of sex that she had before marriage. I mean, women by and large think any sex that doesn't lead to marriage is a, is a waste. So uh i think uh, also the more partners that women have that's just statistically proven that's the biggest decider for whether or not a marriage is going to work not the number of partners that a man's had but if a woman's had more than 10 sexual partners she's a really lousy bet to be a faithful wife and mother you're at high rates of getting divorced your statement is largely true in general, there are some women who truly enjoy sex for the purpose of it. Uh, they, they tend to be bizarre, though. It's true that most women who are mentally healthy that I've met in my life, uh, they, they see sex as leading to babies. And I think it's a good thing that it's so.
Yeah, absolutely. Like your your sane woman is not going around screwing around outside of marriage or having casual sex. By and large, the women who dent the bed and have the, the casual promiscuous sex are by and large insane. All right. Now you sent me an interesting news item from a Jewish newspaper, from my understanding. Netanyahu, Iran nuclear deal is based on lies. Here's the proof. And so first, I'd like to introduce, uh, I'd like to get introduced and I'd like you to introduce the audience on Iran itself, its relation with Israel. Why is Iran considered a security risk? What's in its history, which has led to it being considered a security risk? Okay, so Iran has not launched an offensive war since the 17th century. So on the face of it, Iran does not seem like a security risk. But Iran takes its Islam seriously. It's an Islamic state. And for any believing Muslim, the presence of a Jewish state on land that was once occupied and, and dominated and ruled by Muslims is just uh, horrifying. And so just the very presence of Israel in the Middle East is horrifying to people who take Islam seriously or people who take uh, Arab nationalism seriously. And it's also a humiliation in that uh, the Dome of the Rock is the about the third holiest site in Islam. So that's part of it. And uh, Iran has developed, is, or at least is on the cusp of developing a nuclear weapons program, which is entirely in its self-interest. I see absolutely no way that Iran can be prevented from having a nuclear weapons program, because for one thing, Israel has a huge nuclear weapons program, and Iran proxy forces Hezbollah in Lebanon are a constant uh, conflict with uh, the, the Jewish state. And so the Jewish state having nuclear weapons in Iran not yet having nuclear weapons, it gives the Jewish state a massive advantage. The Jewish state has the most powerful military in the Middle East. Iran is is thrusting up to try to become the, the most powerful challenger to uh, Israel's military supremacy in the Middle East. So what we have here is a, is a clash of interests. And the uh, problem for Iran is that it has an average IQ of 84. So that's a point lower than the average African-American IQ. It's about uh, approximately 20 points lower than the average Ashkenazi Jewish IQ. And so it's really hard to build up a formidable country when you have that low an average IQ. But because they have approximately 70 million people in Iran, they have enough smart people that they can go nuclear. On the other hand, they've had a nuclear weapons program since the 1950s. So it's somewhat pathetic that uh, 50 years after they began trying to develop a nuclear weapons program, they still don't have one. All right. And uh, so are you personally for, uh, for any country, including countries in the Middle East like Iran, to be obtaining nuclear weapons? I, I don't look at it in terms of being for or against. I just look at it in terms of reality. And if you want your country to be a winner, you're going to want to have nuclear weapons. Gaddafi uh, gave up his nuclear program and Gaddafi got raped and killed. So the United States intervened, invaded Iraq. United States is going all around the world, sticking its uh, nose into other people's business and using its military might to push people around. Your, your best uh, case for survival is to have nuclear weapons. It's entirely in Iran's national interest to have nuclear weapons. If I was Iran's national security advisor, I'd be strongly pushing for 
nuclear weapons. That's the that's just the reality. And I would expect Saudi Arabia to get nuclear weapons too, and eventually Egypt and uh, possibly other countries in the Middle East. Like, why would why would any other country in the Middle East want to sit back and be fine with the Jewish state having nuclear weapons? But hey, that's okay. We will give them the big the big weapons, and we'll be fine with pistols. It, it makes no sense. Now, can you take us through this article? Because honestly, you've sent me this hours ago. I, I tried to read it, but it, it, it sweats Jewish propaganda. And I, I barely, my, my brain was barely able to believe a single sentence of it. We're talking about a Jewish newspaper publishing a discourse made by Netanyahu. So can you explain it to me while I'm, I'm more open-minded to Luke Ford explaining it to me? And I'm sure my brain will be able to trust you. <laughs> okay, so I expect... Bibi Netanyahu to be a warrior for his people. And that's what he is. And so he has been banging on about the dangers of Iran's nuclear program for two decades. And he's always, it's always 1933 or 1939 in his public presentation uh, to the world. And this is just like the latest, uh, most dramatic uh, example of his modus operandi because While Iran's nuclear weapons program is no threat to the United States, it is a threat to Israel. It's a threat to Israel's strength and dominance. And so, of course, Israel is going to feel nervous when a neighboring country develops nuclear weapons program. So Netanyahu is trying to push the line that uh, the, the, the deal that Barack Obama did with Iran is all based on lies. Well, The facts on the ground are that the incentives are so strong for Iran to develop a nuclear program that, of course, they're going to try to get his way, get away with as, as much as possible. It's just that's that's the reality of, of power politics. So what so, was the nature of the deal that we're talking about? Well, Barack Obama did the very best deal that he possibly could do. He got Iran to wait 10 years before going nuclear. And he gave back, uh, you know, tens of millions of dollars that the United States had seized uh, from Iran when uh, Ayatollah Khomeini took over. And he got this deal through against the opposition of the, the Jewish lobby. So a lot of people tell me that, that uh, America is Zog, America is Zionist-occupied government. Well, no, not, not fully, because there are plenty of things that America does that are strongly opposed by Israel, such as this deal with Iran. So um, America basically did everything it could to bribe Iran to not go nuclear for at least 10 more years. And the incentives are there that Iran's going to go nuclear you know, sooner or later, uh, Netanyahu, as a mighty warrior for his people, is understandably and rationally concerned by, about Iran going nuclear because then he loses uh, military supremacy and very survival of the Jewish state is threatened because a handful of nuclear weapons could essentially wipe out the, the Jewish state. So Iran has had leaders such as Mahmoud Ahmadinejad who, who kept uh, talking about the destruction of the Zionist state. Now, was he talking about wiping out 7 million Jews or was he simply talking about ending Israel as a Jewish state and uh, you know replacing it with, an, with another form of government that wasn't an ethno state? I, I believe the latter. 
but it's uh, very easy for people to think that uh, Iran is threatening a nuclear holocaust on Israel. I don't believe that's true. I believe that nation states are rational actors and it would be irrational for Iran not to do almost everything it can to develop a nuclear program. All right. So Netanyahu is uh, is on a stage and he's uh, he's in a Steve Jobs type presentation with a big uh, iron lied screen. So what is the lie that Netanyahu is attributing to Iran? Well, he's saying that they're not fully living up to the deal, and and of course that's true. Iran is going to get away, try to get away with absolutely everything it can, and so. This is right after Netanyahu bombed parts of uh, Iran Iranian facilities in Syria. So he did the bombing first, and then he came out. Uh, and I'm not really up on all the, the details where he's trying to say that uh, uh, Iran is lying. Obviously, Netanyahu has an agenda, and obviously Iran would be crazy and stupid if they didn't try to manipulate the nuclear deal. Of course, Iran is going to try to get away with everything it can. It's just like a guy on a first date. If a woman doesn't stop him, he's going to take her all the way in all likelihood. And so if the international community doesn't uh, stop Iran, they're going to be completely poised where they can go nuclear just like that. And so they're going to try to get away with everything they can get away with. And so BB is trying to rally Uh, Donald Trump and Donald Trump supporters to scrap the, the deal with Iran and to somehow uh, stop Iran from going nuclear. Ironically, if you scrap the deal, you are dramatically increasing the incentives for Iran to go nuclear because remember, the United States went in and crushed Iraq in 2003. The United States and, and Israel have often pushed around their weight in the Middle East. So the more I the more Israel and the United States push their weight around in the Middle East and, and try to uh, bully people, the more likely countries such as Iran will go nuclear. So this looks like business as usual to me because it's been, I, I, from my memory, 10 years that there are hesitations that we don't even know if Iran is respecting this, this, this deal. And so it seems that this deal is just a poor deal, that it is Iran's interest eventually to break it. Yes, it's absolutely in Iran's interest eventually to break it, but they should probably want to get away with as much as they can get away with without getting caught and without getting sanctions. So sanctions damaged Iran's economy significantly. So it's just like uh, people when you go to work, like do you, when you're an employee, do you go to work and uh, spend 100% of your time working. No, generally speaking, your average employee only works as much as he absolutely has to and tries to get away with as much as he can. He will try to talk with his co-workers. He will try to surf the internet. He will try to like set up assignations. He will do everything but work. Like that's the typical employee attitude. And so too, Iran is a, is a rational actor. They don't want the return of sanctions, but they will inevitably go nuclear. Well, thanks for bringing this story. John, this $10 US says, big fan of Luke Ford. Thanks for bringing him on. Here's 35 shekels converted. So, uh, yeah, I've been uh, talking about the uh, ma weapons of mass destruction situation with Nick Fuentes. We especially talked about 
North Korea and Syria. But uh, Nick Frontes has presented an hypothesis where he believes that the strike in Syria, they, they have a symbolic function, that they, they serve simply for America to signal, signal its willingness to attack countries that develop uh, things that, that violate the, the agreements that were obtained either in the field of nuclear weapons or in the case of Syria, in the field of uh, chemical weapons. Do you also see the Syria strikes as a symbolic uh, display to other countries? Uh, yeah, but I see it more in terms of a woman's trapped in her apartment with a guy and she's either going to have to get on her back, get on her knees or give him a hand job. And so I think Trump was in a situation where he had to either get on his back, get on his knees or give the globalists a hand job. And he gave them a hand job and did these symbolic strikes that didn't really mount to much, but he had to take some kind of action or there was going to be, you know, massive negative political consequences. Like Trump is not an interventionist by nature. On the other hand, he wants to survive politically. And so when he was going through a tough time, when there was all sorts of attention on Stormy Daniels, then he probably took the wag the dog option. And probably also there was an element of what Fuentes is saying in that uh, is trying to signal that uh, the United States is not completely opposed to military intervention under Trump. And this is a sad thing. I believe you're correct in in, ex in representing the mind of Trump. He doesn't want to fall too much. But I think that his base wants him to continue being the Trump that he was in the elections. And so I think that it's a very poor decision to let his base go because now there's people who are truly pacifist, who are truly non-interventionist, who believe that Trump also was that. And if you lose this base, you may not get re-elected. I don't know if it's his goal to, to get re-elected, but he may be considered a bad president for not sticking to the base that elected him. I don't think uh, there'll be a significant number of people who, who really care if Trump uh, lobs a few missiles into Syria that doesn't lead to any further repercussions. I mean, people on the alt-right love to signal how politically pure they are by going crazy when Trump lobs a few meaningless uh, missiles. But uh, also Trump has to operate within reality. In Barack Obama's first term, the only member of his foreign policy team who opposed the 2003 invasion of Iraq was Barack Obama himself. Why couldn't he find other people to fill his foreign policy team who similarly opposed the 2003 Iraq invasion? Because there weren't any. And so the people who get into America's foreign policy operation are people who are eager to intervene overseas. They, they love playing the great game. And so Trump is going to have a, a very hard time staffing his, his foreign policy team with uh, those who are reluctant to intervene because that's boring compared to playing the, the great dramatic game. Absolutely fair analysis. And it's a, a big uh, drama. It's a big fatality of the... The fact that people who are in the, the deep state or the state, the state machine for military intervention, they are, of course, interested in it happening. Shea Ginger, $2 US, says, what does Luke think of the book of Daniel? Oh, my God. Well, my father wrote a PhD in the book of Daniel. So my father was an eschatologist, well, is an eschatologist. Eschatology means the study of the, the time of the end. So I was growing up when my father was doing his second PhD, which was in the abomination and desolation in Daniel 814. 
So I grew up in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, which was very focused on uh, biblical prophecy and what will happen at the time of the end. And I just remember growing up as, as a preacher's kid, all these nutters coming over to the house wanting to uh, talk to my father about what will happen at the end of time and, and just argue theology. I saw my father just spend his life uh, arguing theology. And so I, I went in the opposite direction. I, I converted to Orthodox Judaism where you almost never find anybody arguing theology. Okay. And Base Deplorable, $50 US, says, I run. And by the way, people accuse me of saying, I run. I am sorry. In French, it's Iran. And it, it really sounds like an O in French. So maybe at some point I will be practicing the English pronunciation. But that's what I can do for now. He says, I run. I run. Owes $53 billion to the families of US citizens. It, uh, citizens it has killed in 1983. Obama gave $1.7 billion to Iran because he was a Muslim and a traitor. I don't believe that he was a Muslim. <laughs> Is that? <laughs> Do you agree with this, Luke? Right. Barack Obama doesn't have a religious bone in his body, so I don't believe he's a Christian either. And producer Chris, $14.69. Hello, Luke. I'm a regular in your streams. I think Iran and Israel only pretend to be enemies. I think they're in a Freemason cult together. The anti-Israel aggression is staged. Yeah, I, I don't think that's true. But uh, you can have enemies become become allies and you can see this in your own life you may hate someone but then you discover that both of you hate someone else even more intensely and so you're bond with someone who used to be your enemy so saudi arabia and israel have had reasons to be enemies but now they're both bonded and allied against uh, the surging iran so it's conceivable that in some other kind of uh, change situation that iran and israel might possibly find interests in common, but I don't believe that the conflict between Iran and Israel at this point is staged. All right, and Jewish Power and Privilege sends $5 US, recommends a video, go watch it if you'd like. So, uh, Luke, I, I thought that we could finish the hour with a, uh, unless you had other things to say about the Iran situation. No, I'm good. Go ahead. Okay. So I, I consider you kind of a, an anthropologist of the alt-right because you let them go on your stream, you talk to them, you interact with the chat. And so I'd like to hear your current thoughts on the alt-right. I know that you are not in the alt-right, but you make a lot of streams on the subject. And so what is your view of the movement right now? What is your feel on the ground? Okay, so this will be very unpopular with pretty much everyone on the alt-right, but it seems to me that the alt-right's gone into a, a downward spiral since Trump's election, and it's become like previous iterations of white nationalism. So why didn't previous iterations of white nationalism work in, in the United States? Because by and large, they did not attract winners. They attracted socially marginalized, criminally prone Uh, people who were not able to work together in a cohesive and coherent fashion. And since Trump's election, you've seen the alt-right put far more energy and passion into fighting each other than fighting the enemy. It just seems to be a, a continual downward spiral. So Richard Spencer's had to quit his college tour. He lost his best attorney who, what, this is like, like Kyle Bristow is like a fascinating 
emblem of what's happening with some parts of the alt-right. One minute, he was like threatening journalists with genocide. He says, when we take power, we're going to take care of people like you. And then a week later, he makes the most abject, humiliating apology uh, and says he will no longer have anything to do with uh, political activism, all because of some pretty uneventful news stories about him that uh, brought up uh, information that was very easily publicly available, but he was apparently completely unprepared to to be held accountable for his words. So it was just crazy when you go from threatening genocide and then you completely cuck and you completely abase yourself and, and swear that you'll do no more uh, political activism. And he even like said, I did all this for trannies. You know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a good guy. It was just so embarrassing. Then you had the, the horrible flame out between uh, Matt Heimbach and his father-in-law and the, the broken uh, woodshed. On the other hand, what the alt-right has going for it is some very formidable intellects like Richard Spencer and, and Greg Johnson and Jared Taylor. So it'll be interesting to see the direction the alt-right goes in, see what's, what's appealing and what viscerally feels good is often bad for you. And so what feels good is to say, all our problems can be blamed on this outside group, the, the Jews. That's the cause of 99% of the problems in, in America and in the Western world. And I find a lot of people on the alt-right believe that. And that's so much more appealing than saying most of our problems are of our own making. Like most people prefer to blame their problems on outsiders rather than taking accountability for their own behavior and for their own people's behavior. On the other hand, there are people like Jared Taylor who does not focus on uh, blaming the Jews and Richard Spencer does not focus on blaming the Jews and uh, Richard Spencer has attracted some very smart people uh, around him. And so I think much of the alt-right does have truth on their side, that they're fundamentally tuned in to what makes the world work, which is biology, evolution, race, identity. There are a few things more important to individuals than identity, and the foundation of the alt-right is identity. And so on one basic way of understanding the alt-right is simply, I want my people to live. And anyone who can't say that, any, any white person who can't say, I want to secure the existence of my people and a future for white children, that's just such an unbelievable uh, disregard for one's own welfare and for one's own people that it, it's just sad. So I would think that every people would want to live and want to establish a safe future for their children. And so if the alt-right makes that its foundation, and instead of primarily blaming out groups for their own problems, uh, becomes more introspective and takes responsibility for its choices. So, for example, uh, the alt-right has been feeding many of its best and brightest like into confrontations with Antifa. They've been putting them in situations where they're going to get beaten up by Antifa, where they're going to get doxxed by Antifa, where they're going to get humiliated by Antifa, where law enforcement is likely to arrest you. And that seems to me, as an outsider, a really poor use of resources. It would seem to me that when you take the red pill, you shouldn't 
plunge into alienating yourself from your family, alienating yourself from your friends, getting doxxed, getting arrested, getting beaten up. Instead, to me, the red pill should mean that you make more money, that you have improved relations with your family and friends and community because you understand how people really work. You understand that you can't say everything in every situation. I get into an argument maybe once a year. I've got a lot of out there opinions, but I just take into consideration the person I'm talking to. So you should never try to push someone in a direction that they don't want to go if it's only going to trigger them and make them want to hurt you. So, so many people I see on the alt-right are getting discombobulated by the red pill and it's leading them into a downward destructive spiral, while there are other people who take the red pill and it strengthens them and leads them in an upward direction. So by no means am I saying tight taking the, the red pill leads to a downward spiral, but it does seem to have done that for a significant number of uh, young men in particular. And, and I find that concerning to me. Once you understand reality, that should lead you to having better relationships with other people and having more success in your life and not getting doxxed, isolated and humiliated because poverty, isolation, you're just living then right on the precipice like these are steps towards suicide. And uh, I would think that uh, alt-right leaders perhaps would put more attention on the welfare of their most devoted followers and uh, urge them not to alienate themselves from their family and friends and communities to use discretion in what they say. And remember every action that you do, every word that you say, it then brings a reaction so when the alt-right presents, we want a white ethno state, then that energizes the, their enemy by about 10,000 times. That increases the opposition by about 10,000 times. On the other hand, it probably inspires your own group by say three times. So if you do things and say things that fire up your enemy by 10,000 times, and they only fire up your own group by about three times, that's a massive tactical disadvantage. So perhaps a, a more uh, socially acceptable message could be developed, such as around freedom of association. I think that could be perhaps a winning strategy for the alt-right. But uh, calling for you know 100% uh, pure ethnostate, that only fires up your enemy. Uh, on your earlier points, that was a very fine analysis uh, of the state of the alt-right uh, currently. I think that we are in cycles all the time and now we are in a cycle where, okay, there, there's not much action to be deployed. And I don't think it's bad. I don't think it's wrong. And I think that the alt-right is in a good position to the extent that political discourse is extremizing itself. The, the Overton window is stretching and there are more and more extreme positions on the left and on the right. And to that extent, uh, the mainstream conservative discourse, I believe, in the next 10 years will become more and more insufficient to a greater and greater amount of people. Uh, yeah, I, I, I agree with, with those points. But uh, you can go into the public with feces over your face, such as by publicly taking on symbols and language associated with the Third Reich or with the KKK, or you can present yourself to the public in a suit and tie. Like one's acceptable and likely to help the movement grow. The other is self-defeating. And uh, we have a couple of super chat from Jewish Power who says rubs ends together. I will not read the rest, but thanks for your donation. <laughs> Darius Ashkeni, $5 US. 
Uh, U.S. probably owes trillions upon trillions of dollars to the families and nations it's bombed and killed. Americans have no right to sue other nations. Thank you for your comment. Now, on your second point, uh, Luke, about the, the the potential for extremization of an individual after being exposed to the red pill, I will say, yes, your your warning is valid, and I would recommend everyone to have a rational basis to understand the world rather than fall into the most extreme beliefs you can find. I have a strategy to know what, what is your base for facts and d d does everyone, uh, wh wh whatever people tell me, how do I process it to determine if it's true? Uh, I certainly recommend this. However, I will point out that the, the guilt, the, the, the guilt also relies on the left for extremization because there are certain ideas that are made taboo in our society. And you know that if you talk about these ideas, you will get called a Nazi. Even if you talk of them in the interrogative form, you know that your opponent or, or, or even not your opponent, but someone who's more extreme than you will eventually use this questioning against you to paint you as an extremist. And I think it happened to me. It happened to anyone who, who gets interested in white nationalism or the alt-right. And to that extent, there's a point at which you, you look at this belief and you say, okay, I want to talk about this. I want to, I want to ask questions, even if they're tough questions, but knowing that you will get painted as an extremist, it makes every move toward the, the extreme of your political direction more easy because you're like, I have nothing to lose in, in, in talking about fascism now and talking about Adolf Hitler because people are going to paint me in that way anyway, whether I do it or not. And so there's a kind of point of no return, I believe, that is created by extremism on the side of the left. Okay, it's tremendously tempting to think that there's nothing you can do that will affect how other people treat you and speak to you and react to you. And it's just not true. We all exert a force field. We all have a profound and tremendous effect on how other people react to us. And so someone can call us a Nazi and then we can react by going, okay, well, yeah, I'm just going full 1488, you know, Heil Hitler and uh, gas the case. You can react that way, but then you just, you magnify the opposition to you, or you can come from a place of serenity. You can come from a place of, I didn't need to fight you. I respect other people's, I try to understand where other people come from. I will give you an example. From a Jewish perspective, Christianity is pure idolatry, but you don't hear Jews going around telling Christians your religion is pure idolatry. That would be suicidal. It would be unbelievably self-destructive. Now, any Jew who has any basis in Judaism knows it is kishkas, in his soul, the Christianity is idolatry. But you never hear Jews saying that because you only needlessly provoke people who have the capacity to hurt you. And so in Jewish text, uh, ancient Jewish text, that it will talk about idolaters and it uses the word aku. And so when when Jews were forced to account for these texts to, to Christians, they would say, oh, aku, that only means the idolaters in ancient times. That doesn't mean Christians. Of course, that was false. 
every every learned Jew knew that it still applied to to the, to the Christians today, but the presentation to the public was, oh no, that's referring to the pagans in in ancient times. So you can be pure and you can speak the truth, and simply you just walk into a buzzsaw, you just walk into a wood chipper, or you can be discreet and you can bypass the wood chipper. You can get along with other people. You can abstain from saying everything that you believe, and you can be prosperous. You can have good relations with people. You can thrive. You can have a family. You can have an honored place in your community. So you can either go into public with your face covered with feces, or you can take responsibility for how your own words and your own actions affect how other people react to you. Ellen Sabatino sends a great super chat. She says, even suggesting the U.S. should maintain our white majority makes normies go ballistic. What can we do if stating the obvious freaks people out? Well, you don't say it uh, publicly. You just talk about preserving American culture. You talk about freedom of association. And you just learn what you can get away with. You talk about the dangers of illegal immigration. You, you might even say, we've got, you know, we've got too many immigrants, we can't assimilate them. There are all sorts of ways that you can talk about white nationalism without triggering people unnecessarily. And so you just have to use a little cycle. You just have to use a little wisdom in how you frame things. You can be a Donald Trump supporter and go to a dinner party filled with people who hate Donald Trump, and you can have a good time. You can, uh, you can say things in a way that's not going to trigger everyone. And if you go around making people hate you, that's going to lead to a miserable life. But you can interact with people with diametrical opposing political and religious views from you, and you can get on great with them if you just use a little sacral, if you just use a little sensitivity, if you just put yourself in their shoes and take responsibility for the way you use your words and the way you use your actions. I absolutely disagree with you in the long term. And someone pointed on the chat, he just said, this is exactly what got us here. And you have to, to get out of the subversion. You have to get out of having taboos because these taboos are kept on the public space to shut down people. And talking about the white race and talking about its existence and its right to protect itself may not be in the short it may be triggering in the short term but in the long run what we are creating is a mediatic context which in 20 years will have regularized the idea of the white race surviving and that's the only option for me do it on the public space be honest about it if the muslims can have their countries if the japanese can have their countries the white race should have its country and it should care about its own existence Right, but the time and place and context is everything. You have the time, the place, and the context where you can make that argument in a very powerful fashion. But do you really want some 18-year-old kid getting beaten up at school because he makes this very same argument? Do you want him to put his life in danger? Do you want husbands and wives to divorce? Do you want people to be disowned by their families? Do you want people to get fired? Uh, do you want you know the full weight of law enforcement falling down on, on other people who hold the same opinions? You have to take into consideration the context. In certain contexts, saying what you say, you can say that. I can say that. I can say that the white 
the white race has every bit as much right to preserve itself and protect itself and to thrive as any other race. I have no problem saying that, but I have devoted a tremendous amount of time and, and effort and resources to put myself in a position where I can say these things and there's not going to be a massive blowback. Other people in other contexts saying the identical same things, they will get doxxed, fired, divorced, humiliated, ostracized. So for those people, I would say, be more careful. We don't all have to play this, the same notes in the band. Some people can just be great doctors and donate. Other people can be lawyers. Other people can be clergy. Everybody has a role to play. We don't all need to go on YouTube under our real names saying the 14 words. I say, no, you're right. Not everyone has to do it. But if you feel like you should do it, and you think that you can bring something original, I say do it. I say all of the threats of violence you've mentioned, if you let yourself be intimidated by advanced threats like this, you are already being the victim of abuse. You just, it's not just, it's abuse that doesn't show in society, but it's a threat of violence. Your wife's gonna divorce you if you say that, let her divorce. Make all of these people pay for what they do. Let all of these bullies pay for what they do, make sure that you you make the cost of their violent behavior toward you a cost that they won't want to afford in the future. That's my view today. Look forward. It was great talking to you. Do you have any final points you'd like to make before we conclude? Yes, get along with other people, use discretion, take, take advice. Uh, you don't have to say everything you think in every situation. I'm the worst guy for this advice, but thank you so much for coming. It was great hearing from you. Um, I still don't have my outro music, but I'm going to play again the intro for you guys. And again, if you like this show and you want it to continue and you want it to improve, let us know what figures, what public figures in the comment section, what public figures would you like to see in that intro scene? Thank you for coming. Bye bye.